Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Wake Smith to talk about his book, Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. Wake is a lecturer at Yale University and is a senior fellow at the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Very kind of you to have me, Brian. Thank you. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So as you say, I'm a a lecturer at Yale and a fellow at Harvard. All of that is a second career for me. I spent most of my uh, working years in the commercial aviation and aviation finance fields. So my uh, graduate degree is an MBA rather than a PhD. Uh, But I have nonetheless gotten deeply involved in this field of climate interventions and um, enjoy talking to people about that. Well, great. Well, so we'll come back to something you had mentioned there. But to start this off, of course, you and I were talking a little bit before we started this. But I guess we'll make the question very simple. Why do you feel that we needed to discuss some of the strategies you present in this book when in theory, a lot of people seem to think wind and solar energy is going to kind of fix everything. So there is excessive optimism right now in the general public uh, about how easy it will be to transition to net zero emissions. And people imagine that solar, wind, electric cars, trees, Uh, regenerative agriculture that puts more uh, carbon in soils. People imagine that these sorts of solutions can easily bring us to uh, the net zero future that we need in order to stop warming the climate. I remain hopeful that someday those and other things will bring us to that net zero future. But as I do the math, which I have done, Uh, repeatedly, I think we're going to reach net zero more nearly by the end of this century than by the middle of this century. And if that proves to be an accurate prediction, then we won't stop warming the world at the safe-ish one and a half degrees or two degrees Celsius that are uh, so often talked about. I'm afraid we're headed for a more nearly three C temperature anomaly relative to the pre-industrial baseline. And while 3C, 5, 5.5 degrees Fahrenheit, that may sound like not much. After all, wherever you live, it uh, warms and cools by more than that uh, each day. Um, but the, the height of the last ice age 20,000 years ago was only 6C cooler than it uh, is today. So 3C, half of that, although in the other direction, in the warming direction, 3C would have huge implications for the um, ecosystems of the earth and the people who live on the earth. And so, again, I'm afraid that we are headed for much more climate change than most people 
uh, think is likely and that most people are prepared for. And so what that in turn means is that I think that in addition to those other solutions that we absolutely need, uh, we're going to need further tools to uh, help defend our lifestyles and and, uh, the ecosystems on which we depend uh, in a much warmer world. And that is what uh, brings me to the to the implements in Pandora's toolbox. Yeah, and so right in the beginning, you make the point, and you think you just hinted at a little bit, that even if we reach net zero, which doesn't sound like it's happening anytime soon, that doesn't reverse the damage and it doesn't technically save us. We still have to do some drastic things. And so again, here's here's a huge part of the book I'm going to ask you about. You present kind of the two big ideas of, <coughs> excuse me, of uh, solar radiation management and carbon dioxide removal. And so I know that's a lot to kind of take in, but can you maybe introduce us to one or both of them? Sure, happy to do. So firstly, one more bit on the predicate. Uh, As you've said, even if we get to net zero, irrespective of how quickly we do it, all that does is stop the climate problem from getting worse, but it net zero isn't the end of the climate crisis. Um, it's helpful to think of the climate uh, problem as a as a bathtub uh, that has a, a spigot flowing in. That's our ongoing flow of greenhouse gas emissions. There's the bathtub itself that is full to whatever level we fill it. And there's the drain by which Mother Nature removes greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. The problem is that the drain in respect of CO2, which is 80% of our greenhouse gas problem, the drain is essentially clogged. It takes centuries to millennia for the CO2 we put in the atmosphere to drain away. And so if we fill the bathtub too full before we stop filling it, generations, you know, tens of generations after us will have to live with with whatever bathtub level we've filled the bathtub to. Um, So again, if we fill the tub too full, that's a huge problem. And it creates a couple of knock-on problems for those people in the future. One problem is that those people in the sweaty 3C world that they may live in by the end of this century, they may say, this is simply unacceptable. We can't stand that the world is this much hotter and will be for centuries to millennia. We can't stand that. And we've now developed the technology by which to remove some of that CO2 from the atmosphere to drain the bathtub much faster than Mother Nature will otherwise do. And the way to do that is carbon dioxide removal. Uh, That's sucking CO2 back out of the air and ironically putting it back in the Earth's crust which is where we got it from when we drilled for oil or gas in the first place. But until, I I mean, if we wait for Mother Nature to do it, it will be vastly too slow uh, for uh, the well-being of the people who follow us on this earth. So I think the, 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 the 
humanity is going to need to ramp up a huge new industry to vacuum the atmosphere, and that's just as gargantuan a task as it sounds. Uh, But unless we do that, um, uh, it will simply be too hot for way too long. Uh, But the size of the industry that would be required to do that is roughly the size of uh, the entire fossil fuel industry today. So all the oil, all the gas, all the coal, that's how big an industry would be required to suck carbon out of the atmosphere at the rate that we're now putting it into the atmosphere. Uh, And again, very big idea to discuss. And so you had mentioned the idea of the earth healing and you bring up a very good point that a lot of people's hoping or seem to think that earth will just fix itself. And I think there's plenty of data showing that's not going to happen, but I I do think what's interesting and I'd love to talk more about is I'll just, I guess you disproving some of those things. For example, I'll admit that myself growing up, the idea was always trees are a good thing and that we need to plant more trees and that will probably be what helps us. And I guess I, I have I read the book, so I know the answer to this. But it sounds like planting a lot of trees is just not going to be the answer. It, uh, that is true. Uh, the main reason is just a a scale mismatch. Um, the The world's best estimate for how much trees could contribute to the solution if we maximized the tree you know, planting uh, and forest preservation, they might solve about 10% of the problem. So it's not that trees aren't helpful, they are, but 10% of the problem doesn't attack the 90% of the problem. It's just, it's completely misscaled to the magnitude of the problem we have. But moreover, um, anywhere where there are not trees, but trees could be planted, is a place where some industrious human 10 years ago or 10,000 years ago cut those trees down to uh, plant agriculture primarily, but to build cities and houses and roads and so on. And the population of the world is still increasing. We're 7.6 billion-ish now, likely to top out at 10 billion-ish. All those additional people are going to need land on which to do things. So the idea that we're going to take a whole bunch of land out of other uses, again, primarily agriculture, and dedicate it to the growing of trees, which produces approximately nothing for the economy, because we can't cut those trees down, otherwise we're back to where we started, Um It's just not a realistic land use option. So we're not even going to get to the 10% that um, trees could potentially get us to. So it's not that I'm against trees. It's just that a clear-headed view of this um, makes clear that trees are mostly a green distraction. They're much more nearly greenwashing than they are a solution to the problem. And to put that in perspective, if I'm recalling this correctly, it was roughly two acres of trees for one American would be the offset required. I think that's right. And and so you start gobbling up land. If we're going to offset, uh, uh, you know, all of the emissions of Americans, we're gobbling up huge swaths of the country. Uh, we just, people aren't going to do that. And so again, and then so, 
you would discuss all the, the different opportunities for this this strategy, but also some of its challenges. I think not to oversimplify, money is most likely the biggest challenge here. For sure, if we shift from the dizzy-headed trees and soils view of this to a sober, you know, understanding of what's going to be required, yeah, we got to build huge machines that look an awful like lot an awful lot like the machines that got us into this problem in the first place. And we've got to essentially reverse oil drill, uh, drill holes in the ground, pump stuff down rather than pull it up. Um, And that's just going to cost trillions of dollars a year. Roughly 5% of the entire global economy would need to be devoted to capturing and burying that carbon. And... In theory, that's possible if people are hurting enough. But again, we are shipping an enormous bill to the future if we are putting carbon into the atmosphere that we expect them at their expense to extract back out of the atmosphere. That's a that's just a huge economic lift. And so the other strategy, I guess, now to talk about I guess I want to say cheaper, but it still <laughs> sounds like quite a few billions. But the other strategy does sound, at least from, again, without discussing some of the issues that come with it, it seems much more feasible regarding money, and that is the solar radiation management. So so that is true. Um, uh, within the solar radiation management bucket, there are a bunch of other dizzy-headed ideas, sort of like our trees, even dizzier, in fact, but um, space-based things that just aren't going to happen in our lifetime or um, uh, thickening clouds, which we don't know how to do. The one thing we do know how to do uh, is referred to, and know how to do is overphrasing it. The one thing that we're reasonably scientifically confident would work is uh, stratospheric aerosol injection, or what I'll call hereafter solar geoengineering. But uh, solar geo uh, is the idea that we can mimic in a man-made way what volcanoes, the very biggest volcanoes, do naturally a few times a century, and that is to blow up into the stratosphere uh, large quantities of sulfur dioxide. That sulfur dioxide oxidizes into uh, H2SO4 or sulfuric acid, and in that state uh, reflects sunlight. And if we get it up into the stratosphere, the second layer of the atmosphere going out from the earth, not the troposphere that we live in, but if we get this uh, sulfur into the stratosphere, it would hang around for 12 to 18 months. It would spin all around the world east-west. It would migrate from the tropics to the poles and would therefore, over its atmospheric lifetime of a year or so, envelop the entire earth in a thin reflective veil that might reflect out one or two percent of the incoming sunlight. Um, 
relative to sucking uh, CO2 out of the atmosphere and burying it in the Earth's crust, as you've earlier said, this is cheap, cheap, cheap. We could, you know, shake out the, the cushions on our couch and find enough money to do this. I'm being facetious, but it's two or three orders of magnitude cheaper than um, uh, carbon capture. Um, it's tens of billions a year rather than single-digit trillions a year. So cheap, cheap, cheap. But there are all sorts of problems with it. So I'm not trying to sell cheap as an, you know, as a benefit exactly. Um, um, the problems are, first of all, um, we are un- we are considering here a huge uh, experiment with the only atmosphere we have, and if something went wrong with this, some uh, unknown unknown that we hadn't predicted, uh, we've created a huge problem for ourselves. Uh, none of the scientific research, or very little, that would need to be done about this has yet been done. All the uh, studies that are going on are still in the laboratory. And of course, before we did any such thing, we would need to get out into the atmosphere and uh, blow little bits of these uh, particles uh, out and see where they go and what they do and how they evolve and how they affect wildlife when they come back down and all of the things that you would want to uh, be confident in before one undertook such a thing. Um so lots of scientific unknowns and lots of governance, maybe not unknowns, but unsettled issues. Who's in charge and how do we set the global thermostat and how do we make decisions and how do we compensate regional losers, even if most of the world are regional winners from such an intervention? Huge governance uh, uh, issues that are unsettled. So on the one hand, if it gets too hot in the future, the good news is there does appear at least to be one tool on the shelf that might be able to be used cheaply and, and uh, uh, with, with rapid impact on the climate uh, to cool the earth. But again, lots of risk, lots of governance issues, lots of science that hasn't yet been done. So I'm not trying to sell this as a um, a panacea, and I'm certainly not trying to sell it as a substitute for mitigation. It would be much uh, safer to uh, reduce our emissions in the first place rather than emit a lot and then require either of these interventions. But if we do turn out to heat the world a lot, as I'm afraid is highly likely, um, both of these tools may become essential to how our great-grandchildren survive in the next century. You know, it's an interesting point. You mentioned governance. And again, I think staying on the topic of the uh, the uh, SAI, uh, or, I'm sorry, stratospheric aerosol injection, uh, what makes it, I think, a point you bring up a little more unique than everything else is where most strategies, mitigation, would require, I, I believe you call it an affirmative policy, you know, the government forcing people to do something. This one's unique in that 
people would have to be forced not to do it or to take it into their own hands. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? That is exactly right. In fact, since the book came out just in the last few months, we've had the first glimmers of a couple of different uh, entrepreneurs or scientists beginning to do this with no one's permission. Now, you don't exactly need anyone's permission. There's no governance structure yet that prohibits any of this. Um, but uh, people have been frightened to see people begin to, you know, do teensy weensy little amounts uh, of uh, deployment that will have no impact on anything, but do demonstrate to the world that um, rogue deployment or just un authorized, unagreed, not, you know, unilateral maybe is the the right word, word, unilateral deployment in this arena is possible. And before anybody gets too tempted in that regard, uh, it would be important for the world to put in place um, agreed rules of the road for what can be done and what sort of transparency and consensus ought to be arrived at before things are done and how we monitor the impacts of what has been done, um, it, it would be a better world if before we got to any of this, we had some rules of the road in terms of uh, how, how one would proceed with this. Interesting. And so, again, I think we could talk a lot about governance in terms of you know literal government policy. But uh, I think something you bring up that I'm starting to hear a lot more about is the idea of personal ethics and personal action. And so, I, again, I, you, you use some case studies of discussions you've done at, at, at colleges. But would it be accurate to say that one of the bigger challenges is the individual person being unwilling to sacrifice out of fear of nobody else doing it? Absolutely right. And that operates both on an individual level. I'm not willing to give up my pickup truck until the guy next door gives up his, but also um, uh, on a sort of governmental level, um, the, the, the single policy that would be most effective at curbing global emissions would be a global carbon tax that taxes coal a lot and taxes oil less and taxes gas even less and taxes solar energy not at all. Um, if if Uh, such a tax regime were in place, the market then would naturally begin to steer people away from uh, emissive energy sources and uses and towards ones that are more environmentally friendly. Um, But very nearly no one would vote for such a tax today. Nobody wants more taxes. Um, and, And so we do have this problem um, where at least those people that are paying attention broadly know what we need to do, but nobody wants to do it. Uh, and therefore, we are continuing to ship uh, a huge climate bill to the future that the future is going to be very unhappy about. I do worry that um, our great-grandchildren will view us in the way that People today might view great grandchildren, great grandparents, who were unreformed racists. Um, you know, people will, people do today look back and say, "How could people have fought that way back then?" And I'm afraid that 
80 years from now, my great-grandchildren will look back at me and wonder how could how could he have continued to operate a, a you know a passenger vehicle that was uh, um, uh, powered by gasoline when he knew that w- what that was going to do to us. I I uh, I worry that uh, people will perceive the morality of this in that way in the future. That's an interesting point, and I think fairly accurate. And so again, I know there's a there's a lot presented in the book, a lot of very unique, cool strategies. I, I would recommend others to check them out. But my so my, my wrap up question for you is, you know, you just said that the book has recently come up. So now that the book has been finished, and it sounds like you're tracking a lot of things about it, what uh, what was what is your next project? What has been occupying your time now that you finished the book? Well, there is a uh, global commission on overshoot, as it's referred to, that has been essentially self-appointed, but is uh, working to deliver a um, report to the UN General Assembly in September on what it would mean if the world does overshoot these 1.5 and 2C goals, and what the options are that the world should consider if that does happen. It's all the same territory discussed in the book. But now that there is a a global commission of uh, senior climate diplomats from all over the world uh, beginning to wrestle with this question, it's, um, it's it's a new forward step in the climate story and uh, I'm just paying very close attention to that. I'll be fascinated to see what that commission comes up with. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been my pleasure. Happy to do. And for everybody listening, the book is Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. Uh, Thank you again for listening and have a great day.